On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Paul Gould about Christian Platonism and abstract objects. So we cover topics like what is Platonism, how does it compare with other views like Aristotelianism or different modern metaphysical presuppositions, what are abstract objects, does Platonism have any particular special view of these, how does Christianity fit with Platonism? and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. So I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am writing solo, as of now at least, without Brandon Askew, my uh, co-host. And we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, and we try to do that with a group of virtues in mind. This isn't everything that we want to promote, but it is certain ones that we we find valuable and we think can uh, help at least encourage us, especially in our online age, to be charitable, curious, critical thinkers. And then we also add in cheerful confessionalism because we like robust, big, thick confessions of faith because we think it helps guide our thoughts about what we should think about God, but we don't want to do it in what has often happened throughout even history is just you become, I don't know, just jerks about it, sort of, if that, if that's the technical term. We don't want to do that. We want to be cheerful in what we confess. And today I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Paul Gould, and I've long admired his work as well as his demeanor. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about abstract objects, about Platonism. I mean, there's been a renewed interest in Christian Platonism, so I'm excited to pick his brain on some of that stuff. I mean, if you're interested, I'm going to give you up front. Go to paul-gould.com. You can find all of his stuff there. I mean, you've got all these different books. You've you've got books ranging from apologetics uh, to some of the more topics that we'll be discussing today, as well as uh, a book that I think a lot of our inter- listeners may be interested in, Christianity and Philosophy. It is, I guess it's, I think it's five, four views, four views in here on how philosophy and, and Christianity interact. So I think there's been a lot of discussion on the role of philosophy in the Christian faith. So you probably find quite a bit of uh, help in here. So you've got Graham Oppie, who is an atheist, Scott Oliphant, Timothy McGrew, and Paul Moser, and uh, you and Richard Davis edited this. So I think that's a really interesting uh, book for a lot of our listeners. So go check those out. Go find them. Uh, I, I commend all of his work. I'll do that on the front end. But now let's let's get down to business, uh, Paul. Why, why don't you give us a little bit of background on who you are? And then when it comes to thinking about abstract objects and Platonism and things related, what made you interested in devoting years to even think about sort of topics like this? Yeah. Hey, Jordan, it's great to be on the podcast. And uh, yeah, just really looking forward to our conversation. Um, In terms of who I am, um, yeah, my name is Paul Gould, and I'm currently an associate professor of philosophy of religion at Palm Beach Atlantic University. So we're enjoying 80 degree weather here in late March. Uh, And then also the director of the MA in philosophy of religion here at Palm Beach Atlantic University as well. And so we're having a lot of fun. Just it's our first year of this new uh, program and really enjoying uh, kind of digging in deep into the the root of, you know, Christian liberal arts and philosophy uh, through this MA. Uh, other than that, married uh, to my wife, which is a good thing, uh, Ethel. And uh, we've got four kids, uh, three, uh, two that are in college, two that are in high school. 
Uh, the two college-age kids are at Baylor, so half of our heart is in Texas. The other half is here in Florida, um, although my senior in high school just committed to Baylor, too. So literally half of our heart will be in, in uh, Texas next year. Um, yeah, and in terms of uh, why interested – why did how did I get interested in Platonism and abstract objects? I think in some ways it goes back to J.P. Moreland, so I'm going to blame it on him. I've, I've actually blamed it on him before, so this is nothing new, but it's his fault in some ways that I'm a Platonist about abstract objects. We'll make some distinctions, I think, that will be helpful as we explain that. But that's sort of where I was exposed to these ideas. Um, actually, my very first class at Talbot when I was in seminary, which was uh, a metaphysics class. And I continue to be interested in that um, because there's actually some downstream issues that are really important, I think, for Christians. And we'll talk about some of those today, probably. Um, but by the time I got to doing my PhD at Purdue University, I uh, one of the things that I learned that turned out to be like the best way to select a topic um, was find something in the literature that that is like a really clean argument against the v views that you want to hold. And as it turned out, my uh, dissertation committee uh, advisor and uh, a good friend, Jeff Brower and Mike Bergman, had written a very tight article arguing that you can't be a traditional theist and a Platonist. And of course, I wanted to be both. I want to be a traditional theist and I want to be a Platonist. And so very clear target. And I figured, hey, why don't I take on some of my uh, philosophical heroes? And in fact, they directed my uh, PhD thesis too. So um, that was a lot of fun. And yeah, so since then, um, just continue to wrestle with it. And I think that I'll, as we as kind of the conversation unfolds, I'll try to share some of the reasons why I think it's super crucial um, for us as theologians and philosophers and, and just Christians today to think about these topics. That's awesome. What in our appetite. So before we get into the topic, you mentioned the MA that you are directing there at Palm Beach Atlantic, and I want to go ahead and promote that real quick. We've got a lot of listeners who are interested in theological philosophical education. There's not a lot of Christian institutions that have philosophy sort of degrees, and you guys are one of them, and you've got a really cool faculty that's going on there. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, go check it out at their website. I think there's a lot of neat stuff going on. You guys post stuff on Twitter. I'm like, wow, that's cool. I'm jealous. I'd love to be a part yeah, of that. Um, yeah. But anyway, so let, let's talk Platonism, abstract ob objects, things like that. So let's let's set the table first. Um, in your mind, how would you define Platonism? I've seen a lot of different definitions over, over the years. Growing up, I mean, taking philosophy courses, Platonism had a very tight definition, but it seems like over the last couple of years, I've seen some theologians seem to broaden that. So can you just give me an understanding, what is Platonism and maybe how does it compare to Aristotelianism? Is it different or are they the same sort of thing? Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's actually an important question um, because you're right. There's so many um, things that seem to go under the label of Platonism and Aristotelianism and metaphysics. And so it's just really helpful. In fact, one of the things JP taught me and taught his students early on was if we want to be good thinkers, we need to learn to make distinctions. And so if we want to be good teachers, we, we need to learn to teach distinctions. So I think probably the easiest way to go through is let me just make a couple of distinctions because uh, I think this might help kind of give the conceptual landscape. So I'd love to distinguish between like the Platonism of Plato and contemporary Platonism. And then maybe maybe then we should probably distinguish like the Aristotelianism of Aristotle with contemporary Aristotelianism. And then it would probably be helpful also to distinguish kind of in the contemporary landscape. There's there's the, there's these kind of two basic pictures for how to look at the world or at least the universe um, that usually go by the names the Neo-Humean uh, mosaic and then the neo-Aristotelian or uh, 
a mosaic. And so maybe it'd be helpful to make the dis distinctions so we can kind of locate our discussion today. Is that okay? So let's start with uh, Plato. The, the Platonism of Plato um, can be un understood in terms of the doctrine of eternal forms and the immortality of the soul and the denigration of the material body. And so for Plato, there's basically this transcendent immaterial reality uh, where the forms exist and the forms would be the thing that's most real. And then you have the visible realm, which is less real. And that's, this is the realm of change and, and material things and, and, and so on. Um, and so there's kind of a dualism to, to Platonism. You have the realm of being, and then you have the realm of becoming. Sometimes it's called the intelligible realm and the sensible realm. And the idea is that one realm is eternal and static and unchanging, and the other realm is corruptible and temporal uh, and changing. Um, but notice, though, you know, there, there's all these dualisms embedded in the, in the Platonism of Plato. You've got, you know, the intelligible and the sensible, being and becoming. Uh, you sometimes you'll hear the dualism of like the necessary versus the contingent. And then at other times you hear, you'll hear the dualism of the abstract versus the concrete. And it's that last distinction or dualism that gets us to contemporary Platonism. So contemporary Platonism very simply is just the view that abstract objects exist. Um, so in addition to concrete objects, there's abstract objects. And that would be uh, in discussion or contradiction. Or, and then the competitor would be nominalism, which is just the denial that abstract objects exist. So there, there's sort of Platon, Plato's Platonism versus contemporary Platonism. And then when it goes to Aristotle's Aristotelianism, probably the best way to get at that is actually, I always find it helpful, at least pedagogically, you know, in a classroom, you, you kind of begin, or it's nice to begin with that famous picture of the School of Athens that Raphael painted in, I think, 1511, where you've got, you know, in the center of that picture, you've got Plato with his finger pointing up, and then you've got Aristotle with his hand pointing down, and it's symbolic of, you know, Plato saying that all fundamental reality is up in the heavens, and Plato, or, and then Aristotle saying, no, 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 fundamental reality is down here. And, and it, that's, it's a sort of caricature, but it's helpful as a caricature um, because the main difference between Plato and Aristotle was that Aristotle rejected Plato's theory of forms. And so the idea was for Plato, the fundamental being is found up in that realm of the forms. But for Aristotle, it's down here, right? Fundamental reality, fundamental being are, are things that are found in, in their ordinary objects of the everyday experience of our world, namely substances. And so... You have substances is one category of being, and then you have these nine other categories for Aristotle that are all sort of dependent on this fundamental category of substance. So you can comp so um, so that would be like Aristotle's Aristotelianism, although it's sort of complicated because I'm also persuaded by Lord Lloyd Gerson, who's a, a an ancient scholar, and he argues pretty persuasively that Aristotle was a certain kind of Platonist, and at least with respect to this idea of top downism. There, there is some truth to the claim that Aristotle is a kind of Platonist in the sense that Aristotle has an unmoved mover or a god that explains everything in the material realm as well. Um, anyway, so let's contrast that with contemporary Aristotelianism, or sometimes it goes by the name Neo-Aristotelianism, of which there's a huge renaissance taking place today. And I just pulled, I just looked at the editor's introduction to um, this book called Neo-Aristotelian Perspectives on Contemporary Science. And in there, the editor's give five sort of characteristics of contemporary Aristotelianism. I'll just list them briefly. Those five characteristics are a causal powers ontology, and that entails teleology sort of back on the table. Number two, a layered or structured view of reality ordered in terms of metaphysical priority and posteriority. 
Number three, a pluralism of simple and composite objects. And then usually in terms of two kinds of objects, substances and then ordered aggregates. Number uh, four, the idea of substances as members of recurring natural kinds. And so essences or natures are back on the table and taken seriously in biology as well. And then finally, number five, and this is consistent with the ancient view, a rejection of extreme realism or Platonism. That is a rejection of abstract objects. Okay, so we've got Platonism, we've got Aristotelianism, and then just real quick, there is this other fundamental debate uh, or way of characterizing the metaphysical landscape, especially with respect to the universe in the contemporary landscape. And that's between the Neo-Humean and the Neo-Aristotelian. And the basic idea there is has to do with dependency. Uh, for the Neo-Humean, um, the idea is that there's no necessary connections between any distinct realities. And so you just have a little bit of matter here and a little bit of matter there, and they're just kind of bumping in the void. And that's, of course, you know, a, a philosophical descendant of Hume in the modern era, but it, it holds incredible sway through Quine and David Lewis and others. But there's also this resurgence of what's often called the Neo-Aristotelian mosaic, but I sometimes just call it the Christian Platonic Aristotelian mosaic. And that's the idea that reality is sort of shot through with necessary connections, um, particularly those that stem from the, the natures or the essences of fundamental substances. And so you've got these two big pictures. Broadly, you have on the Neo-Hemian view, a kind of priority microphysicalism, where fundamental reality is the little BBs, whatever physics says is the most basic thing, and then everything else is sort of built up from there, versus... Um, and, and something called part priority, which is the kind of metaphysical priority that orders uh, that, that the universe. And then on the Neo-Aristotelian view, you've got um, a kind of whole priority where you either have, for those like Jonathan Schaffer, this idea that the universe is the one fundamental whole and everything else are just parts of this, this one substance. Or you have really most of the medieval tradition and many Neo-Aristotelians today, myself included, who argue, no, that there's fundamental wholes at all these different levels of concrete material reality. So you'd have normal size substances like humans and animals and maybe inanimate substances like carbon atoms and things like that. So those are your basic two um, pictures and kind of how the debate is sort of being played out on the contemporary scene as well. Super helpful. So maybe give me just one or two minutes cashing out when it comes to abstract objects, how does Platonism think about them compared to Aristotelianism? I know you we've talked about, you know, sort of the pointing down, the pointing up, um, where fundamental reality is, but where, how should we think about that? Are, are they really distinct ways of thinking about it? Or is Lloyd Gerson sort of the more appropriate where Aristotle, he's got some unique twists, but fundamentally he is in agreement with Plato. Yeah, good. So, I mean, I think in terms of, um, the kinds of things that Lord Lloyd Gerson is looking at in, um, some of his work. It is true that they share much more in common than, than um, is, is commonly thought. But I do think they differ, especially with respect to this doctrine of forms. Um, you know, Aristotle would reject the Platonic view. And so Plato would, I'm sorry, contemporary Platonism would endorse this belief in abstract objects, but contemporary and also Aristotle would reject this idea um, that there's abstract objects. So they both believe in universals, and this is something that they share in common. And a universal is just um, some property that's multiply instantiated or multiply exemplified. So you and I both, we, we might say, share um, 
the universal being human in common. So both the Platonist and the Aristotelian will agree that universals exist. For the Platonist, though, that will be a transcendent abstract object. And then for the Aristotelian, that will be a concrete, imminent um, property, uh, you know, that's located in space and time. So that's the main difference. Uh, Aristotelianism would reject uh, belief in abstract objects, or at least with respect to properties. Yeah, that's help- that's helpful. So now, the I think the the fun question of where does Platonism fit in with Christianity? So does is it true that you know in the first couple of centuries of the church, the church fathers uncritically just imbibe Platonism, and then they just run with it, and it corrupts the fundamental aspects of the faith? Or is there a more nuanced view? Or is it should we be able to just say, yes, I fully endorse what Plato says. It's fully compatible with all aspects of Christianity. Yeah, that's a great question. And again, it's going to require some disambiguating, because I think there's a lot of confusion, a lot of loose throwing out of terms, um, Especially, a little. I'm a little worried about that within some theological circles, and so I guess it would be helpful to maybe distinguish between classical Christian Platonism and contemporary Christian Platonism because those are two. I'm finding as I'm reading all the different literature on this, those are two very different things. And even within classical Christian Platonism, there's kind of like a wide scope reading, and then maybe a narrow reading even of that. And so sometimes when people talk about Christian Platonism. I think what they mean is classical Christian Platonism. And what they often mean is something like, oh, I just mean Augustinianism, you know, or what might be surprising to people outside of theology circles, they might even just mean Thomism. You know, you might think that Thomism is a version of Aristotelianism, but oftentimes it's just cashed out as a version of Christian Platonism. So that would be like the narrow readings of this classical Christian uh, Platonism. But then there's also this wide reading of classical Christian Platonism that I'm finding, especially in the theological literature. And it's basically like everything up until the 1500s is called Christian Platonism, you know? And it's just it's just like the whole tradition um, is exemplified at, at the zenith of um, the high medieval ages. And so they refer – so oftentimes you'll read – like Hans Borsma, for example, will refer to the great tradition. And what he means is pretty much everybody up until the 1500s was a Christian Platonist. So you have that, I think, often that kind of language. And and there's sometimes that's, there's a kind of Platonic core that's wed to classical theism. Sometimes that Platonic, Platonic core is abstracted from that, but it's usually um, referring to actual extent, like people or traditions within the, the church church history. But then more recently... There's um, what I would want to call contemporary Christian Platonism, of which I would I begin there actually, and here you even have a thin and a thick version. There, contemporary Christian Platonism is very simply, especially in the thin version, just um, someone who wants to defend two theses: number one, that God exists, or the, the Christian God exists, the Triune God exists, and number two, abstract objects exist. And so that's a very thin kind of contemporary Christian Platonism, and. Nicholas Wolterstorff or Peter Van Inwagen, um, you know, a number of people would, would fall into that camp, Keith Yandel. Uh, and then there's a thicker version of contemporary Christian Platonism, which I would find myself in this camp. And that's where they want to add to that sort of minimal God exists and abstract objects exist, some other theological commitments, um, maybe a commitment for example, in my case, to uh, a divine aseity and sovereignty. That's an important biblical doctrine that you want to hold that causes a whole bunch of like puzzles to, to surface. Um, another one that I've been um, 
sort of exploring is this idea of a sacramental universe, which I think pulls together. I think the Platonic view of things very nicely pulls together the sacred order and the natural order with this participatory ontology. And so anyway, you have thin and thick versions of contemporary Christian Platonism. Uh, and those discussions on the contemporary scene are usually played out in philosophy. And then the discussions on classical Christian Platonism are usually, it seems to be uh, taking place in theology. And there's not very much overlap. And I think that we ought to be in a little more discussion together. That's awesome. But all that to say, this is a really important topic um, because, yes, Plato is super important. And the early theologians didn't just sort of accept Plato blindly. You know, they, they did it with the eyes of faith, and I think they did it in appropriate ways. But that doesn't mean that everything that they imbued, uh, you know, still ought to be um, imbued. So anyway. Yeah, that's right. So I've loved so far you've made like eight different distinctions. So I'm going to give a total promo for we've got all these cool T-shirts and hoodies and mugs that say we distinguish. So I'm all about the distinguishing. Oh, nice. So go check them out at the website. Right. I encourage you Very to cool. buy one because I want to get them all out of my closet. Um, and they're also really cool. So two for one for me. I'll buy, I'll buy some for my students. They, <laughs> they get tired of me making distinctions. But this is how we become good thinkers. So. That's yeah. right. So... You've got this really, I think you're, you're the editor and you also have a chapter in it, this Beyond the Control of God book, um, this, the problem, with the problem of abstract objects and, and Christian theism. So there's, you've got, I think, six different views. William Lane Craig's in there. You've got Greg Welty in there. You've got Graham Oppie. I think, I'm probably mispronouncing mm-hmm. his last name. Um, That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you're in there and maybe, is it Keith Yandel? Who else is in there? Oh yeah, Keith Yandel. Did you get Welty? Keith Yandel, yeah. myself and Brian Davis. Okay. Um, I think you got them all. So I found this book super fascinating and really, really helpful. So a lot of, there's a lot of those four or five, six views books that aren't always the most helpful because either A, you just don't get the right people in there for the right sort of dialogue or B, it's just fluff for some reason. But I really liked the dialogue back and forth in this one and it was really clarifying. So you defended a, a version of I guess, modified theistic activism. So why don't we first, before we get to that, what is the problem between God and abstract objects? And then talk to me a little bit about your, I guess, way around this potential problem. Okay, good. And I will say um, just, I think last week, um, I, I there's a book that just was released called Four Views on Christian Metaphysics. And um, in there, I defend the Christian Platonist view, This one of these contemporary versions of Christian Platonism. And it was a lot of fun. There's an Aristotelian view, an idealism view, and then like a Christian postmodern view. Um, so that's hot off the press. So if you're interested in – and my views have developed over time. And so that's sort of the latest um, view where I'm really trying to incorporate some of these more sacramental images and ideas uh, of the Platonic tradition into my view. But back to the 2014 work, uh, Beyond the Control of God. Yeah, so in there um, – you know, the the subtitle is um, Six Views on the Problem of God and Abstract Objects. And I, kind of what I was playing with or riffing on was, I mean, you know, it, like in 1912, Bertrand Russell wrote this famous book called The Problems of Philosophy. And, and these represent like all the the different perennial questions that philosophers have been dealing with since the beginning of time. Things like, you know, the problem of evil or the problem of skepticism or the mind-body problem. And as far as I know, I, I think I coined the term the problem of God and abstract objects in my dissertation and then in that book. And the way that I set out that problem is in terms of an inconsistent triad. So basically, I've got three propositions that independently are plausible, but if you can join them together, they're inconsistent. And so that 
generates the problem of God and abstract objects. And so here's the three propositions. Proposition one or claim one is that abstract objects exist. That's just Platonism. Proposition two is if abstract objects exist, they then they are dependent on God. And that's a claim that comes from traditional theism, right? Especially uh, traditional theism uh, includes the doctrine of divine aseity, such that anything distinct from God depends on God, and God doesn't depend on anything for his existence or nature. And so if abstract objects exist, according to the doctrine of divine aseity and sovereignty, it would follow, according to traditional theism, that they're dependent on God. And that's just claim two, okay? But then you have claim three, if abstract objects exist, then they're independent of God. And that claim is a very plausible Platonic assumption that's held by, you know, a lot of contemporary Platonists because abstract objects are typically thought to be things that are necessary, eternal, and therefore independent kinds of things. Um, and so that's just a common Platonic assumption. So you've got these three claims, but together they, they are, are inconsistent. And so at least one needs to go of those three claims. And the reason why this is such an interesting problem and so fun to work on this is that whichever claim you try to reject, other problems surface. So, for example, if you reject claim one, claim one was abstract objects exist, um, you reject Platonism. And then I think you run into at least the problem of universals is becomes difficult. How do you explain the resemblance that uh, amongst, you know, different beings and things like that? How do you account for qualitative facts? I think that the problem of universals is actually a pretty good philosophical argument. There's a really good philosophical argument for Platonism. We could go into that if you want, but that becomes a problem. Um, if you reject claim two, you have two problems. Number one, you're no longer a traditional theist, and that might be a problem for some. It's not a problem for everyone, right? But but that's that's a problem. But even beyond that, you, you run into what's called the ultimacy problem. Because now you have these um, independently existing abstract objects, such as properties, that explain the God's character. So you have the property of being all-powerful that somehow explains the the God's characteristic of being all-powerful. And so God is an ultimate. You know, he, his... Ex his nature is explained through this other thing. And so you have the ultimacy problem that surfaces, and that becomes difficult to work on. But, and then so probably the, the, the one of choice for most people is to reject claim three. That's the idea that if abstract objects exist, then they're independent of God. And so maybe you just, um, one natural solution is just to say, well, no, they're dependent on God in some way. And, and, but then, the, then you have two problems as well. You have this problem of of explaining what that dependency relation is because you need like you, you can't just be mere like logical dependency because that's not asymmetric, right? You need some sort of that's that's a mutually entailing kind of relation between two necessary beings. But you need some kind of asymmetric dependency relation between one necessary being, God, and these other necessary beings, namely abstract objects. And so you have this dependency worry that becomes really difficult. And if you if you make the move that many do, myself included, to explain that dependency in terms of causation, such that God is the cause of all distinct from God abstract objects, well, then a new worry surfaces, and it's called the bootstrapping worry. And many people argue that this renders this version of Platonic theism incoherent. And it goes, you can kind of do the bootstrapping worry pretty quickly and easily. It goes something like this. Um, if you claim that God is the creator of all properties, right, because we don't want these things to be independent of God, we make them causally dependent on God, well, here's the problem. In order for God to create properties, he must first have the property of being able to create properties. 
but if he but he can't have the property of being able to create properties until he creates properties. And so what you have is this vicious explanatory circle where God is sort of pulling him up, pulling himself up by his bootstraps. Hence, the bootstrapping objection um, has led many people to argue that that solution um, is just basically logically incoherent. And so that's why the problem of God and abstract objects is so intractable or difficult, um, but actually super fun to work on because of all the different, you know, push push the rug down in one place and something pops up somewhere else. So, Yeah, that's good. So my THM supervisor was Greg Welty. Um, so, yeah. so naturally I read quite a bit of his own stuff as well, you know, mm-hmm. his dissertation and pieces. And I was able to ask him lots of questions about this sort of debate. Um, yeah. his view in here is, what does he call it? Is it theistic conceptual theistic realism? Conceptual reason. Mm-hmm. How would you contrast your view to his and why would you, what, what are the benefits you think you're getting that he's giving up on his view? Good. Okay. So. Right. So um, Rich Davis and I argue for a view that we call modified theistic activism. So let me let me say what that is and then maybe how it contrasts a little from Greg's view, uh, which because they're very close, um, actually. Um, so to understand modified theistic activism, I just need to back up a little bit to theistic activism. And this is the view that was articulated in sort of recent times in 1986 by Tom Morris and um, Christopher Menzel. Uh, they wrote this wonderful essay uh, called Absolute Creation. Um, I understand, I don't think it's apocryphal, but I understand that um, Tom and Chris were talking one night at a conference and then uh, about this. And then Tom Morris with his fountain pen sat and wrote that whole thing like, you know, in, a, in one sitting or something. And it's beca- and then he kind of moved on from philosophy of religion. He's doing other things now. And it's, but that one essay in 1986 is like reinvigorated this whole debate for the last like 40 years. And so anyway, in that view, they argue for something that's either called absolute creationism. Sometimes it goes by the name theistic activism. And that's just the idea that um, abstract objects exist. They're created by God. And they're identical, identified with various constituents of the divine mind. And so for Morris and Menzel, they identify properties with concepts, propositions, properties and relations with concepts, and then propositions with um, divine thoughts. And then they build up all the other platonic chord from there. So all the platonic apparatus is located in the divine mind and created virtue in virtue of the divine intellectual activity of thinking. So uh, thinking is a productive causal kind of activity in which God creates the, the Platonic chord. So that's theistic activism. Our modified theistic, theistic activism differs from the original proposal in two ways. Number one, um, uh, we, we uh, let's see, number one, we don't identify all abstract objects with uh, constituents of the divine mind. There's two things that we resist identifying with the with mental item uh, objects, and those are properties and relations. So when it comes to properties and relations, they're not mental, uh, uh, they're not concepts, they're not mental items. Um, And so properties and relations exist distinct from God in some kind of platonic heaven. So that's one distinction. Um, But but we are close to them. I do identify concepts. Well, I do have concepts. And then I do think that propositions are divine thoughts. Uh, And then you can build possible worlds out of... of, uh, propositions and so on. The other way that we differ is that um, we, we stipulate that there are some abstract objects that God doesn't create. And the only ones we have in mind are those that are God's essential properties. 
So everything distinct from God is created by God. And, and, and there are some things that are not distinct from God that are constituents of his divine mind that are created by God too. But the things that are distinct from God, namely those properties and relations, are, are created by God. And then God's essential properties are uncreated, and they exist in virtue of the divine substance. So we can kind of unpack. I, I, we have to do a little spade work on what a substance is and how a substance has its properties. But that's the basic, basic view. And so in that way, I bring all abstract objects that are distinct from God into God's in, into the scope of divine creative activity. But I think we do it in a way that avoids the bootstrapping worry, which was that big worry. Uh, and then lastly, how does this differ from wealthy? I mean, in, in many ways, it's pretty similar because at least um, in the Beyond the Control of God book, Greg is dealing with prop, uh, possible worlds and propositions. And for those, both myself and Rich Davis are very happy to locate those in the divine mind. So I think probably the main difference there, though, is um, that he argues that those are just sort of constituently dependent on God, but they're eternal and uncreated. Uh, that is these divine thoughts and divine concepts. Whereas we um, will argue that no, they're not um, eternal. I, I'm sorry, they're not uncreated. They're they're causally dependent on God in virtue of the divine intellectual activity. So that's one small difference as well. But we're very close. So before I ask you about anti-Platonism and William Lane Craig's view. In your mind, I don't know how much study you've done historically, but there's been a lot of church thinkers over time that have said universals, those sort of things, abstract objects in the divine mind. Would you say that they all had a particular view of this or are they kind of spread out across? There's some that would be, you know, it may be a little anachronistic, but they would be in the theistic uh, you know, act, activism or modified theistic mm -hmm. activism or conceptualism mm -hmm. camp. Uh, is it kind of varied? I'm assuming it is. Yeah, I mean, it's varied, but you're right. I think the, probably the majority view, I mean, from at least Augustine on, is to take that Platonic horde and just throw it in the divine mind. Uh, yeah, and so for sure, I think theistic conceptualism of some variety is is probably the majority view throughout history. Um the reasons why we resist that, and again, you know, this is where the debate kind of comes apart, is you have this this shift that took place in the medieval area, medieval period. Um, for the medievals, the, the debate between the Platonist and the nominalist was over the problem of universals, right? And so everybody that was a realist or a Platonist um, thought that universals exist, and then the nominalist just denied universals. But in the 19th century, that shifted, and the debate became between the Platonist and the nominalist wasn't over the problem of universals. It was over whether or not abstract objects exist or not. And so actually, there was a conceptual shift that took place um, between Platonism and nominalism between these two debates. And so that's why you've got to be really careful when I say, and that's why earlier I, I made the distinction between like classical Christian Platonism and contemporary Christian Platonism, we're beginning as the contemporary Christian Platonist um, wanting to discuss uh, debate this top, this question of whether abstract objects exist. And the reason why we resist identifying properties specifically and then relations, which really are just a kind of property, uh, but let's just stick with properties for now. The reason why we resist identifying them with divine concepts is because they're just two different kinds of things, right? Now, in Plato taught this we learned this on Plato's knee, right? Um, concepts mediate between the mind and the world, whereas properties structure the world, right? They're, in, they're intentionally inert kinds of things. 
And so to identify properties with concepts is, is a category mistake on our view um, because they're, they're not intentional kinds of things, right? Properties are the things that structure the world. They're the things that give character to the character objects that we find in the world. Um, whereas um, concepts mediate or represent, they have intentionality. And, and, we, and we just think that's a category mistake, especially when we come to the contemporary debate. And so that's why we've resisted it, um, at least for those, those things there. And it would be really weird too if you said God, properties are concepts, and if and if you're not if you don't think that God is simple, let's say right, then it becomes kind of weird because then God exemplifies the concept of being all powerful, you know. And so He has the concept in His mind and He exemplifies it in His divine substance. It just becomes kind of unlovely and kind of odd. You can do that, but it's you know there's some cost. Yeah. So, so now I'm curious, William Lee Craig, he's got his view that's anti-Platonist through and through. Let's let's kill yeah. all abstract objects. Talk to me about why is it that he wants to do this? It, it, is, he seems to have theological justification if you read some of his works, mm-hmm. uh, but also I think there's philosophical reasons that he's wanting to do this. So can you walk me through why he's doing it and why his is very much a minority report, at least in the Christian tradition? Yeah, good. Okay, so his motives are all... They're, they're the same motives that I would have. He wants to protect divine aseity. He wants, wants to protect the, doc, the traditional doctrine of creation, creation ex nihilo. Um, and then he wanted, wants to protect the idea of divine freedom in creating. And so, if, and so his main target, you know, you, I liked how you meant how you kind of framed it, that he's an anti-Platonist. His main target is this sort of robust Platonism where abstract objects exist as independent things. Right. And so that's true. If if there's like infinities of infinities of independently existing abstract objects, that's true that that does contradict with the doctrine of divine aseity, because now you have all these other things that exist, ase, not just God. Um, and it's also true that if you have all these independently existing abstract objects, divine freedom in creating is significantly limited because now God must use, you know, all these, this Platonic horde to create this very infinitesimal part of creation, but everything else is just sort of there apart from God's control and creative activity. And, and so that's the problem uh, with respect to the scope of creation and so on. Um, so those are his theological motives, and I share those theological motives. I, don't, I, I think that we can be a Platonist and, and, and still hold to those things, and, and that's kind of the bulk of the work that I do is try to, to show that. In terms of his philosophical motivations, though, um, he thinks that there's only one, well, so there's two main arguments or lines of argument in the philosophical literature uh, with respect to Platonism. The two most dominant views or reasons why people opt for Platonism have to do with the problem of universals, which I mentioned earlier, which is how to account for resemblance facts and qualitative facts you find in the world. And then something called the indispensability argument, which is this argument that, you know, um, in, in our in our existential statements and our, and and statements that have singular terms, uh, you know, if if we must refer to abstract objects uh, in, in these true statements, well, then we we must believe in abstract objects. And that was a pretty bad gloss of the indispensability argument. But Bill thinks that neither of those arguments are any good, and so he has theological worries that that give sort of a in his mind um, a prima facie case for rejecting Platonism. And then you have two philosophical arguments that he thinks are pretty weak. And so he sees no reason um, for Platonism uh, or for the belief in abstract objects because of those reasons. 
Okay, so I do want to give us some time to discuss what I think is a really relevant question, which is just more generally, why should pastors, why should Christians care about philosophy? Why should they care about things like Platonism or Aristotelianism or abstract objects? Uh, This doesn't seem to have a lot of cash value for a pastor who's thinking about, I got to prepare a sermon, I've got to stop by the hospital, I've got to go help you know, this, my 75 year old congregant who doesn't know how to hook up their internet so they can video call their, their grandchildren, whatever it is. Why is this relevant for them? That's such a great question. Um, yeah, let me, let me do the, why philosophy and then let me try to press why Platonism too. But in terms of philosophy, um, I mean, you know, you, you teach philosophy, uh, we love to share to freshman seminars, Hey, look at the etymology of the word philosophy, you know, it comes from these two Greek words, Philo or Philean to love and Sophia wisdom. So look at philosophy's the love of wisdom, right? That's like a great starting place. But it's interesting if you read in the Republic, Plato's Republic, he's way it's way more scandalous. Plato describes the philosopher as wisdom's lover, right? That we're moved by this passionate pursuit of wisdom, right? And it's this way of life, and that makes sense given our faith, right? If we read in Colossians 2, 3, in Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and the philosopher is the the lover of wisdom, well, it makes sense that we ought to care about philosophy because, because philosophy and our faith are deeply enmeshed. And so, um, and, and just, you know, I mean, can add to that the fact that we're created as rational animals, that God has created us to know him and to know the world, and that requires us using our minds. I mean, there's so many reasons. The first commandment to love God and love our second commandment to love our neighbor involves loving God with all of our being. So, yeah, philosophy is super important for for um, the flourishing of of individuals and culture. But what, why care about this sort of abstract, well, abstract, abstract debate about abstract objects? Like, why why that? I wonder, let me just um, give three reasons why we should care about Platonism, even the contemporary debate. But I, I actually have in mind, I do think there's a kind of Platonic core to the history of uh, Christian Platonism that is super important too. So let me try to motivate that. Now, as a philosopher, I do think, and I'm, I'm moved by the problem of universals. I, I do think that that drives us to Platonism. I've written in the literature, I've got arguments defending that view. So I think there are good philosophical grounds for Platonism that are purely philosophical. But when we add to that Christian Platonism, I think you have at least three other reasons why we ought to care and why we ought to be a certain kind of Christian Platonist. And let me just give you those three reasons and and sketch. I'm working on these three reasons for a chapter that will come out uh, a little later. This summer I'll be working on that. But um, the three reasons are, are, number one, I think that Christian Platonism secures a sacramental view of reality and this tight connection between the sacred order and the natural order. And this was, this was the dominant view, like we mentioned, for the first 1,500 years of the church, that, there, that there's this tight connection between the divine sacred order and the natural order of the world. And um, Christian Platonism, with its participatory ontology and its divine exemplarism and its great chain of being and its principles of plenitude and its penchant for rainforest over desert landscapes, all of these things um, are lost for the anti-Platonist and for the nominalist of any different variety. Um, And so if you're interested in recapturing the sacramental view of the world, which was the dominant view of the world, well, I think we ought to explore the dominant position uh, for the first 1,500 years, which is a kind of Christian Platonism. So that's one reason. 
Secondly, though, um, when it comes to the debate between naturalism and Christianity, I think that um, Platonism itself makes uh, theism more plausible than naturalism. And I'll just point to one example, but we could do many. Uh, Augustine, you know, if you read his spiritual autobiography and the Confessions, um, you know, Basically, by the time he gets to book three, so he's 18 years old, uh, he, he's exposed to philosophy, Hortensius, and he awakens to this longing for truth. And he says things like, I knew that what Hortensius spoke was true, but he didn't mention the name of Christ. And so I knew that it wasn't the whole truth. And then he goes on this Manichaean journey for about a decade of his life. Um, and then eventually he you know, comes to faith, late 20s. Uh, but he said... During that process, it was the Platonist books that helped him to understand his last intellectual hurdle, which was the idea of how a substance can be an immaterial kind of thing. Um, And it opened up his mind to this whole transcendent immaterial reality. And I see this time and time again, just anecdotally in teaching with students. If you begin with this kind of the dualism of material or a concrete and abstract and kind of open up their mind to this, By the time you add other immaterial things like souls and then eventually the divine substance, the immaterial divine substance, it's way more plausible. And so there's just an it's it's a kind of epistemic. It makes it makes theism epistemically more probable than naturalism. So that's the second reason that I I would want to press. And then the last reason that I'd give for why even pastors, just normal Christians, all of us should think about and and care care about these debates has to do with um, relativism. And, And I think that a kind of Christian Platonism secures something called linguistic realism. And that's the view that our concepts are meaningful because they pick out the essence. They accurately pick out the essence of things. And that essence, of, of course, resembles a divine idea. So it kind of ties together this divine exemplarism, this kind of participatory thing. Um, and so if we want our language to be objective, and if we want to resist a kind of cultural relativism, whether it's in morality or just linguistically with our language, well, I think we have good reasons then to uh, to explore and, and care about the debate that's going on in ap- academic philosophy with respect to the problem of universals. So anyway, there's three reasons uh, that I'd love to unpack more and I, w- I, I plan to in, in a future work. Well, that is awesome. So I'm definitely going to link to that future work whenever it becomes available for everybody. Uh, so thanks. Uh, Paul, for taking the time to walk through through these all these debates, this has been really helpful. You've been able to give, I think, nice summary distinctions as well as some good arguments uh, for various views. So this has been super awesome. So I, to everybody who's listening, go check out his website. We mentioned it earlier, paul-gould.com, as well as if you're interested in further academic education, go check out Palm Beach Atlantic and the MA in is it philosophy of religion? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, perfect. Check out the degree. Um, it's you, you, you can do that and not live there, correct? Yeah, we've got two options. We've got uh, the traditional residential option, and you're right. We do have an option for folks that aren't able to move. So, yeah, just reach out to me over, um, over the web, and I'd be happy to talk to anyone who'd like to hear more. Awesome. Well, I will link to all this stuff in the show notes so you guys can click it and go find out more about those things. And, Paul, thanks for joining us. This has been great. Uh, for those who've been listening, as you know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. 
products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.